Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University. Today I'm chatting with Moritz Bastian Mirwick about a history of plague in Java, 1911-1942, out with Cornell University Press in 2022. Dr. Mirwick earned his PhD in history at the University of Hong Kong with a dissertation entitled Dengue Fever in Modern Asia. He has been a research associate at the University of St. Andrews and a lecturer at the University of Hong Kong. He is currently a postdoc researcher at the University of Leiden and the scientific secretary at the Health Council of the Netherlands. A History of Plague in Java is his first book. Dr. Mirik, Moritz, if I may, uh, welcome to New Books in History. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Good to see you here again. Yeah. And yeah. and I, I said this yeah. off off uh, mic, but uh, let me apologize again for mispronouncing of any mispronunciation of your last name, uh, and I also apologize to my Dutch ancestors. Um, we're, we were we were working on my epigenetic pronunciation skills, but um, uh, well, I think you did, <laughs> did just fine, so okay. it's uh, it's all good. I, I, I did my ancestors proud then. <laughs> okay, so I'm really excited to chat with you because we share some of the same obsessions, and it's a it's a select group of us, right? Um, you know, the fascination mm. with rats and plague and colonial Southeast Asia. Um, but before we get into the book, A History of Plague in Java, would you please tell us a bit about yourself? I'm curious to how you came to do graduate work in Hong Kong and why you were drawn to the history of disease. Yeah, great questions to start with. A little trip down memory lane for me. Um, yeah, the the the, the uh, obsession with infectious disease history came first uh, while I was doing my master's uh, degree at the University of Warwick. Uh, they used to have a, uh, or they still have, uh, a unit for the history of medicine. And I didn't know that field of history at all. Uh, and while I was there, I was really drawn to the people who were working there and the things they were doing and the things they were reading. Uh, and I, yeah, I should uh, really credit uh, my supervisors there because they basically um, gave me a stack of books to read uh, about the history of medicine, like Plagues and Peoples and uh, the Colombian Exchange. And yeah, they got me hooked on infectious disease. I was like, this is wonderful history. I'm so excited. Um, and I remember doing a, a writing a an MA thesis in the end about the history of public bathhouses in nineteenth uh, century London, so something about public health and sanitation. And from there, I started working on a PhD proposal on the history of dengue fever. Um, I, I remember the time period wasn't really specified, and I think it was supposed to be about something somewhere in Asia. Um, and I got in touch then with uh, Robert Peckham, who was the director of the Center for the Humanities and Medicine at the University of Hong Kong. And yeah, he seemed to really like the topic. So he invited me to apply there as well. Um, and I got the funding and off I went. Uh, it was an adventure. I'd never been to Asia before at the time. So uh, yeah, that was a, an exciting period. Oh, that's um, great. I think you're the yeah. first person I've talked to who was dr drawn into the subject by the disease. Um, so many of us like had an interest in the region and then d realized how important disease was, but the, uh, you were, uh, forgive me, but, way, but it, infected, yeah. <laughs> infected by the topic, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't yeah. help that one. <laughs> and then, um, so you were in, in Hong Kong, what, 2013 to? Yeah, I think I started 2013 up until 2017. And then, mm -hmm. uh, after that, I got a, a postdoc at the University of St. Andrews, where I did my uh, plague research for a year, and then I went back to Hong Kong for another two years. Um, right, and th uh, that was th that was the plague project with um, uh, Christos Lin Lin Linteros? 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it yeah. was uh, the visual representations yeah. of the third plague pandemic uh, project. Uh, Crystals had been running that for a period of five years. And I joined in the last year to work on a subset of materials uh, that dealt with uh, the plague in the Dutch East Indies, Java specifically. Yeah, and so uh, podcast listeners can uh, dive into the archive. There's a, uh, a I did a podcast with him and, and Lucas Lucas Engelman. Yeah, Engelman. Yeah, I think. Engelman, or, yeah, uh, Lucas Engelman yeah. about their um yeah. their book on plague and fumigation in this time period that came out of the same same project. So you dive into the new books archives there. It's been a very uh, productive project. Yeah, yeah, it's really a, great work, yeah. especially I mean the the emphasis on the visual, which you you engage and we'll we'll talk about that. But um, you know, it's just it's lucky for we researchers of the third plague pandemic that photography was really coming into its own at this time period and was this main tool of documentation. Um, wonderful, wonderful for future historians. Um, so let's uh, let's get into a history of plague in Java. Um, in addition to my excitement uh, about the subject matter, I was really imp- impressed with what a clear and well-organized monograph it is. I mean, it's such an accessible book and something that I think, um, though, you know, Southeast Asianists who maybe don't aren't um, drawn to disease history will get a lot from it. Uh, those interested in disease history will will find Southeast Asia and the Dutch East Indies made very accessible. So that the clarity and the the accessibility is really strong. And it's got a really solid and clear argument. Um, so tell us, what is what is the thesis of this book? Yeah, thank you so much for the compliments. That's really nice to hear that you think it's uh, such an accessible book. Um, so I think the, the, the central argument really is that uh, there is an outbreak of plague in Java that happens in 1911. And then uh, there is a, a colonial health intervention that is really unique in scale and in scope. Uh, kind of it's it's highly invasive, but it's it's unprecedented, basically, like all of the health interventions that precede it and that come after it kind of uh, fall away. Uh, just the response to plague is tremendous, I suppose. So it uh, it results in a, a tremendous investment of money and labor uh, to try and control this disease. So I think that's, yeah, that's the core argument. Yeah, and, and, and this was maybe the high point of the the. Dutch colonial state intervening in at least at least Javanese society. Maybe it's debatable for the Dutch East Indies writ large. Um, it's a it's a big place with varying degrees of control, right? Uh, but for for Java, this is really transformational. That that absolutely yes, yeah. And I think the Dutch uh, the Dutch power always kind of kind of concentrated on Java. So uh, this is where the disease breaks out, and this is also where where this uh, the response to plague. Uh, kind of plays out, and ultimately, kind of this this program that the Dutch implemented does kind of get uh, used during smaller other outbreaks elsewhere. But yeah, the, the focus is mostly on Java. Right, right. So let's go let's go through the book uh, chapter by chapter. Um, you start with an introduction that gives us the larger historical context to the case study. Um, so maybe you could start with a quick discussion of the third bubonic plague pandemic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, the third plague pandemic. Um, is an event that starts in 1894. Uh, it's a, it kind of starts with an outbreak in Hong Kong, uh, which is a major shipping hub. And from there, this disease spreads around the world. Um, and then it, I suppose it kind of fizzles out in the 1950s. So that's kind of the considered to be the, the third pandemic. Um, yeah, and what happens is, um, well, the Dutch East Indies are, are kind of skipped over for the first 15 years of this particular pandemic. But meanwhile, in the Americas, in Africa, in Europe, 
uh, and in all kinds of parts of Southeast Asia and East Asia, uh, you get outbreaks. Um, already in Hong Kong in 1894, the disease is kind of recognized as uh, the true bubonic plague, that, that kind of the same one uh, that uh, struck Eurasia in the Middle Ages. And then before that, uh, you had the plague of Justinian that is also considered to be true plague. So those would be then the, the three pandemics, uh, the plague of Justinian, the Black Death in the Middle Ages, and then this new event that starts in 1894. Um, what else can I say about that? Um, it's a time in which uh, a lot of research is being done on plague and much new knowledge is generated. Uh, but at the same time, much about plague remains unclear or unknown. You have all these different categories of plague, like pneumonic plague and bubonic plague, septicemic plague, but also really quirky, unfamiliar kinds like pestis minor. Uh, what is it? Uh, so there's a lot of debate about what is plague and what it, what it isn't. A lot of research being done on how it spreads and uh, ultimately, of course, rats get implicated, but um, you have all these other transmission theories that also remain popular for quite a quite a while. Um, maybe it's not just the rats that help to spread the disease, you know, so um, much remains unknown. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, and it's and it's very much associated with um, high imperialism. Um, you have the. the 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 industrialization of maritime transportation um city cities growing tremendously at the turn of the century um and it uh, and i think of myron eschenberg's um now classic plague ports where you know he he looks at the plague arriving in these different cities around the world i mean my my, my hometown's honolulu so there was a, a very very uh intense history there with the plague um in the, the so-called Chinatown and then the still debatable origins of the fire, but um, a fire burned down Chinatown, um, probably set by the Howley of the white uh, public health officials. Um, and then that became no known as the Honolulu solution. And they were, when plague gets to San Francisco, they were, they were uh, city officials were openly talking about a Honolulu uh, policy for San Francisco's Chinatown, meaning burn the thing down. Um, um, it's so yeah, very I mean, worrisome. It's, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's but it but it shows the you know it, it resonates with some things you're talking about. It's not as as um, as as horrifying and as violent as um, as the Japanese cases, but it it shows the the um, sense of crisis and anxiety in public health officials around the world, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So basically, wherever plague spreads, it causes uh, fear and panic or denial and the themes that we're all familiar with in the present as well. Um, and you get these these really um, sometimes I would even say absurd responses like the burning down of houses and districts. Um, uh, yeah, very severe quarantines or forms of segregation. Uh, yeah, basically. And yeah, as you say, it kind of spreads along these major highways of empire or major shipping routes. And you get all of these uh, these port cities that are being uh, particularly hard struck by the disease. Uh, and the case of Java is quite interesting because actually it skips the major port cities, and it it, uh, it the disease entrenches itself into the rural hinterland of Java. So that's kind of what what makes the outbreak in Java unique. <laughs> yeah, I found that so fascinating because it um it really undermined a lot of what I know and knew and um had been studying for a couple of years now about plague in in southeast asia and the world um here you have this the, these rural reservoirs and this, this rural contagion um and um yeah but we, we will talk about that some more um 
So um, tell us, uh, just give my way of introduction, um, what's happening in the Dutch East Indies for the uh, in these years? Um, this is the time of the so-called ethical policy, right? Um, what 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 does that mean in theory and, and practice? Yeah, so uh, kind of over the first um, 15 years of this plague pandemic, the Dutch uh, kind of make a, a shift towards what they call the ethical policy, uh, which is kind of the Dutch answer to the Americans' white man's burden or other civilizing missions such as the Mission Civilisatrice. And um, yeah, so the Dutch kind of start investing. Well, the idea is that they move away fr from this this having a colony of extraction towards a colony that they're kind of building up uh, for ultimate self-rule at some distant point in the future. So they start heavily investing in education in particular. Uh, they start investing in infrastructure, uh, but at the same time, uh, various forms of oppression and, and uh, like exploitation of the local population persist as well. And I think this ethical policy is very nicely characterized by one scholar who calls it uh, fragmented. You know, there's not there is this idea that there is a policy, but it's it's not one policy. It kind of filters through in all kinds of different policy domains, and it's not consistent. Um, and healthcare is really left behind. So it takes a good decade after the start of this so-called ethical policy before healthcare is seriously taken up and that there is a, a civil medical service being created. And that happens basically at the same time as plague is being introduced into Java. So uh, I think two or three months after this, this new civil medical service uh, has been set up, they get to deal with like this major outbreak in uh, East Java. So, um, right. Yeah. And, 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 you know, just sort of circling back to the threat of plague. I mean, so you, we have we have this new colonial uh, public health service that's being being rolled out and finally getting some funding. Um, this new mission for um, the colonial uh, the colonial state, and then here comes this um, this pandemic disease. That they've been they've been seeing it in uh, in Hong Kong and Honolulu and San Francisco and Senegal and Alexandria. I mean, seeing it travel all over the world. Um, so they're there, there's some anticipation, I would imagine. But how serious is the threat of plague, really? And especially if we compare the numbers with other diseases such as malaria, cholera, and dengue. Um, I mean, obviously, nobody wants bubonic plague, especially some of the more uh, more horrifying forms um, like the pneumatic, um, which um, I mean, it's just <laughs> I know. with my graduate students, we play a game of um, which version of plague would you want? <laughs> you know, would you want the I, one where you're, <laughs> you're sick and, and you slowly die over a couple of weeks, but you get to say goodbye or the infection that, you know, you can maybe go to sleep and then never wake up. And uh, anyway, that's a. My, my, it's my a grim, my, but very educational <laughs> practice. <laughs> my, my grad seminars get a little morbid. Um, but so, I mean, how how serious is the threat of plague compared to other diseases? Uh, and, and and the numbers? What? Because um, I know you've done a lot of research on dengue as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so the threat of plague being introduced in Java, uh, I would say, would have been very high because the Dutch East Indies are located at this this huge. Uh, crossroads of international shipping lanes. So it, it really is quite surprising that they didn't have an outbreak, a major outbreak earlier. They had like a few incidents here and there, but uh, those never spread. Uh, one was in Sumatra in 1906, but then that never spreads. Uh, it shows the capacity of the Dutch East Indies to host plague, I suppose. Um, so there is there is kind of this anxious suspense. There's fear that the, that the disease might be introduced, um, but also the Dutch become complacent uh, they're kind of like, well, it hasn't 
you know, it hasn't arrived for 15 years. We keep a close watch on the port cities, the major port cities. Um, but you know what? It's not here, so we don't really have to worry about it. And then when it when the disease is introduced, the response is tremendous. And I think at first that might be warranted because if you look at the number of plague deaths in India, it's it's huge. So it's it makes sense that there is a strong response initially. Um, but I would say uh, over the years, it becomes clear that plague isn't a major killer in a sense. Like you have thousands of cases a year and thousands of deaths, and that is quite serious. But on the population level, compared to other diseases, it's it's not it's not negligible. But there's other diseases that are far more uh, important, like tuberculosis and malaria, um, in terms of the death rate. Um, and of course, Spanish flu as well comes along at some point. Um, but the response to all of those diseases is much more muted. So whereas plague gets its own bureau after a few years, uh, I think a malaria bureau is only set up somewhere in the 1920s. Mm -hmm. So the response to those slower endemic diseases, if you will, um, is, is uh, yeah more muted. Um, and for plague, um, the number of deaths, I think in total over this entire 30 year, period is only somewhere in the, the 100,000, if I recall correctly. It's uh, amazing how quickly you forget numbers after you finish <laughs> writing your book, you <laughs> put it away. Uh, but yeah, it's it's somewhere in the 100,000 something, if I recall correctly. And um, if you look back at it then, and you you look, you look also look at the, the budgets for public health, uh, you just see how how kind of how staggering the response of the Dutch colonial state mm -hmm. to plague really is. They mm -hmm. have uh, health budgets that go from 7 million to 12 million to 21 million over this period. And through that time, you see that plague kind of consumes 2 million, 5 million, 4 million a year. So it's a huge chunk of the budget to this dedicated to controlling this one disease that spreads really slowly from east to central to west Java that doesn't kill that many people. Um, so yeah, the disease really uh, hit a nerve, I suppose, with the, yeah. the colonial government. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's some, something you know, just so there's a real visceral fear and anxiety. And, and I think that here you see these very rational, modern state bureaucracies like succumbing mm -hmm. to to this panic. panic. Which, um, yeah. Panic, uh, Robert, Robert Peckham uh, has, has worked on with the, um, uh, um, his work, your 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 graduate advisor, yeah, um, empires of panic, right? And, and I think and, he's and, working yeah. on a new book, yeah. Empire, I mean, so. literally, empires of panic. Um, Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so I, I think I, I think plague is so amazing for um, for studying the just the state in the abstract sense, uh, especially at the the dawn of sort of twentieth century modernity. You see this whole mechanism swing into action. Um, Anyway, so I find I just find that fascinating. So let, let's get into chapter one, um, which looks at the at plague in East Java, and um, Dutch officials uh, decided that housing was a danger and traditional housing. So how did they come to this conclusion? Yeah, that's uh, I, I suppose that's where it all started. Uh, the whole book, uh, basically, um, what happens is that the Dutch um, Dutch officials suspect that the, the rat is kind of the main reservoir of the disease. So when plague breaks out, they start searching for plague rats in the affected districts in East Java, uh, but they don't find any. And that's that persists for months. So for, for months, they can't find any plague rats or they can't find plague rats in any significant numbers. So the Dutch responders, kind of the first responders to the outbreak, they're, they're kind of left in doubt as to 
where the disease is, where does it come from, how does it spread? Um, um, yeah, so that, that's kind of the question at the back of their mind constantly. Like yeah, they have all these cases, but they can't really trace back how these people got sick. So the, the plague is, the, the, if you look at a map basically from week to week, the, the cases appear very sporadically or erratically through the district. And then um, these other transmission theories that kind of survived up until this time, they gain credence as well. Uh, so maybe maybe plague bacilli are still infecting the ground. Maybe uh, burning a house is the only way of getting rid of the disease somehow. Uh, there's all these, these different kinds of responses. So they start quarantining people. They start uh, segregating, or how do you say, cordoning off villages and districts. Mm -hmm. um, and still they can't find these plague rats. And it takes a good two or three months before someone comes along, a, a, a new bacteri bacteriologist who is uh, brought in from Amsterdam. And he first suggests that, hey, maybe these, these plague rats, they are there, but we just can't find them because they're hiding somewhere in the houses of the plague patients. And at this point, they, you know, they start with a few houses of uh, patients, they start tearing them down looking through the rubble. Uh, and then ultimately they do find a couple of plague rats. And then they, they are like, okay, this is it. And they organize these, uh, these search brigades, uh, I think 50 or so of them. Uh, and they start going through the entire district. And every time a plague house is identified, the house of a plague patient is identified. Uh, they start searching through the entire house, demolishing it. Um, and slowly but steadily, they start to identify hiding spaces of rats. Um, and they find these, these dead or dying plague rats hiding in all sorts of nooks and crannies. And uh, in particular, so they find them in between double walls, they find them up on ceilings, but in particular, they find them in pieces of bamboo, which is the main construction material used in Java. Um, and they they kind of latch onto bamboo as that particular thing that makes a Javanese house particularly uh, plague dangerous. Yeah, um, I, I, I found that so fascinating and so eye-opening for everything that I've been thinking about for a decade in terms of plague in Southeast Asia. I've been focusing on the French sewers and and the steamships and the railways and all these aspects of colonial, colonial modernity and industrialization and, and urban planning and, and so forth, creating these these uh, environments for for rats that can potentially carry the plague, and then here you've completely flipped it and realize and realize that no, it's it's in tradition, it's in um, pre-colonial uh, architecture and the village, and that that's yeah, where even the threat in, is. Even in native construction materials, that's the term they start using. Um, uh, actually, also the sewers really interest me because I I thought the Dutch were obsessed with the tubular aspect of the bamboo, uh, but sewers are of course also tubular in a way. So maybe there's something about that tubes running through places uh, that you know um, captivates the minds of physicians and uh, bacteriologists. Well, it, it captivates the minds of rats. I mean, they do love it. <laughs> they do. They do love the. I mean, there's, there's there's an objective reality here. <laughs> I mean, they they do love it. I mean. Um, there was a, a, an article in The Guardian uh, a couple of years ago um, about the um, uh, searching for rats in uh, Jakarta sewers today. And, um, and they decided uh, they cited me <laughs> for, uh, for the uh, plagues, the history of, uh, of not plague, but um, rats and sewers in Southeast Asia. And it was, you know, some of these these older sewers and um, how, how the heck are they going to get these rats out? Um, so um, one of the things that was um, really great in this book is that you um, you 
have the solid discussion of the role of photography. And I think that this comes from your time at uh, St. Andrews, uh, working with um, the visualization of the plague. Um, could you could you talk about the role of photography? In, yeah, absolutely. Uh, in yeah, yeah. So the the whole project that this this research was a part of is uh, is actually focused on photography, plague photography. So the visual representations of the third plague pandemic project uh, collected all of these plague photographs that were being produced during the third plague pandemic. And there was this this idea that it was the first pandemic ever to be photographed, and um, you know that it was the, that there was the development of a new visual genre that uh, Crystal Stan calls uh, um, pandemic photography, uh, and it focuses on kind of the social and natural life around an epidemic. So all the things it's different from medical photography in that it doesn't focus exclusively on patients and symptoms, but it focuses on kind of the the buildings, the practices the, that, that surround a pandemic. So um, he basically handed me my first set of photographs for this project. It was like, here's 50 or so photographs from uh, 1911, 1912, the first years of this, uh, this outbreak in Java. Um, and those are mostly focused on plague rats in bamboo. Uh, so pieces of bamboo that have been lifted from plague houses. And then you can see... Um, dead or dying plague rats or mummified corpses of uh, of rats. Um, and then in addition to that, there is a lot of photographs of features of the, the traditional Japanese house that are then deemed uh, to facilitate plague, no, sorry, um, to facilitate uh, kind of the cohabitation of humans and rats. So there's all these little holes in walls that rats can move through. And of course, the, the hollow bamboo poles that are being photographed as uh, exit and entry points into the traditional Japanese house, allowing rats to go inside and outside as they please and come into really close contact with the human occupants. Um, so that's that's kind of the first set of photographs. And then as I started this project, I very quickly found a whole new treasure trove of, I think, 250 uh, plague control related photographs. Uh, they were mostly being kept at the National Museum for World, World Cultures here in uh, I think Leiden. Um, and those were from a later period, from mostly from the 1920s and the 1930s. And those focused ex almost exclusively on home improvement. So that was the response that the Dutch had to this identification of the, the traditional house, the Japanese house as plague dangerous. They started improving these houses in such a way that ideally the rats couldn't live inside anymore. And yeah, so the, the Dutch launch into this home improvement campaign. They they renovate 1.6 million houses uh, over the span of 30 years. Um, and that process was extensively documented on photographs. So I think, like, after finishing the book, I still found more photographs. I think I have 600 or so now. And I would say that half of them focus on home improvement in one form or another. So that's houses before, during, and after renovation, I suppose. Yeah, I mean that 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 number, the one point six million houses being re rebuilt, really gets at the spectacular nature of how invasive this um, Dutch public health policy was. Um, and, and it's not, you know, it's not just the city; it's it's throughout the countryside, and um, really it's predominantly the, the countryside. Yeah, predom yeah, yeah. Pre excuse me, yeah. I spoke predominantly countryside, is, and and it's bringing the colonial state to places where we may not think the colonial state actually being that invasive or that powerful 
Um, so just amazing. So, so that gets us into chapter two, uh, where you look at what um, you call the Dutch efforts to quote colonize the home. Uh, so, what does this, what does this mean for the Dutch to colonize the home? Yeah, thank you for the question. Sorry, I kind of forged ahead there. I think already. No, no, uh, with, it's all uh, good. Yeah. The, yeah. So, uh, yeah, in chapter two, colonizing the home, it talks about this home improvements uh, scheme uh, as it develops over the first years. So, um, not not all improvements work, and I think the Dutch spend a couple of years trying to figure out uh, what elements of the, the Javanese house are particularly plague dangerous. Uh, so they come up with all these tables and and diagrams to kind of um, yeah, organize for themselves uh, how they're going to approach uh, this this renovation scheme. So they um, they first start off by like perhaps uh, closing off the bamboo beams of, of the house so that uh, rats can't go inside, but they find that that is not really sufficient. The rats will find other places to live. So, you know, at some point, uh, all houses have to be renovated almost exclusively with wood. Wood is much more expensive. Uh, so there is a, a bit of a traje- trajectory there in uh, in this home improvement scheme. And also plague spreads from East Java very slowly towards Central and West Java. Uh, and home improvement is, is kind of settled on as like, this is going to be our response. So it becomes increasingly um, systematic. Uh, it starts off as an ad hoc program wherever there's an outbreak of plague. They, teams go in and they renovate the houses. And then later they set up, a, in 1914, I think, they set up a plague service that um, yeah, is, is kind of systematically going to go from village to village to improve houses, to make them rat-proof. And what happens is that basically you have these native building materials, bamboo and atap, which is a, a palm leaf thatch. And these are, are kind of completely banned. They are no longer allowed. Uh, they're considered plague hazardous or plague dangerous. They facilitate the presence of rats. That's at least what the Dutch um, officials say. So um, they ban those. And then later on, a few years after that, they, they become very concerned about the shape of Javanese traditional roofs. So the, in Java, you have wonderful uh, traditional roof designs um, all kinds of interesting, very tall shapes or very different kinds of layers. Uh, and the Dutch are again like, nope, nope, those, all those layers, all those, those um, beams running through, you know, the, the higher parts of the house, they contain rats, they contain nests, they have to go. So basically they, they inform this leveling uniformity on Javanese villages by replacing all the different roofs with plain saddle shaped roofs. Um, and that, that eats away at local culture, um, local uh, art, artisanal craft, mm-hmm, is that mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's, it, it, I think it's, so, and then you get the photographs of, of this scheme and you see the traditional houses being placed beside these, these supposedly improved houses. And the difference is just dramatic. Um, so you go from something that was definitely a Javanese house to something that looks a little bit European, but not quite, um, yeah, yeah. very different. Yeah, so I I wanted to um, ask you a bit more about that. You know, what the, what does this mean for the villages in terms of the uh, the survival of artisanal craft, um, architectural mm-hmm. styles? I mean, are are there things that are lost in this process? I think so, but I also don't want to overstate that. I think in mm-hmm. districts that are affected by plague, this is definitely the case, and this happens mostly in the western part of East Java and the eastern part of Central Java, if I remember correctly, those are kind of the, the most heavily affected districts, so, so uh, plague-affected so, so, districts. Surakarta, uh, uh, Jogja. 
Yeah, I think around that area. So it begins kind of in Malang, in uh, Pasuruan, mm -hmm. and it spreads westward. And um, Surakarta seems to be uh, affected quite badly, but then Jokya, not so much, I think. Uh, wasn't entirely clear on that in the, in the end. Uh, it's more in the interior of central Java. So I think Surakarta would be more heavily affected. So and in these these areas, you, you definitely see a loss of... Uh, kind of the traditional arts and crafts, I suppose. So you have the the, the traditional timber workers and they, they kind of lose out on their, uh, you know, they, they can't practice their trade anymore because basically it's labeled plague dangerous. So they either have to move or learn something different. And then you have um, local uh, tile production. So many villagers earned a bit of a supplemental income by producing tiles themselves. Uh, and then the Dutch are like, no, we have very strict requirements now about rat-resistant roof tiles. Um, so they're setting up these new industries and only those kinds of tiles are allowed. So that, that also has an impact on people's kind of supplementary income uh, in the villages. And then of course, there is that, that kind of the, the social effects here as well, that you have you have houses of all kinds of different quality uh, with different kinds of roofs. The roofs are status symbols, symbols of, uh, of class and race, no, not race, perhaps class. <laughs> uh, or, or, and, but, but ethnic identity. Yeah. I mean, there's, uh, you know, yeah, this I is suppose. Indonesia. So you have incredible I think I went diversity. for rank and status, uh, actually. Yeah, so, rank and status. Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, so rank and status. And they, mm -hmm. um, um, yeah, the Dutch kind of come in and they demolish all of that. So, um yeah, and you end up with these villages where all the roofs are basically the same. So it's it's a very dramatic transformation. And yeah, as I mentioned, a bit of a leveling uniformity socially as well as architecturally. Uh, you just get all these supposedly model villages. Um, um, and then the thing that also happens is that all of these houses that have been built of traditional building materials, of indigenous native building materials, the bamboo, the atap, those houses were not particularly visible in the landscape uh, and the Dutch come in with their red tiles and suddenly you get these photographs of houses that really jump out from the background so oh interesting also, yeah yeah so the houses really become like the, the population becomes more visible the yeah just just the the look of the landscape of of Java is going to change oh that's so fascinating because you know so I work, I work on colonial cities, you know, we talk about so much about the the transformation that is the urban center. So, you know, Surabaya or Semarang in this case, I think um Mas Marco wrote about uh wrote about um uh Semarang in uh in this time period and the the dramatic urban transformations and what that looks like with light and the, all these buildings and concentrations of people. But you see this colonial impact spreading throughout the um the rural provinces. That's 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 really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think the the Dutch have a have a, a kind of a tendency to to uh, engineer solutions, if you will. So they're so already before plague happens, they they have kind of launched into these sanitary and hygiene campaigns where they rebuild their cities. So they so for Semarang and uh, Jakarta and such, they they start designing these new neighborhoods and uh, putting in uh, is it piped water and artesian wells and things like that. Um, and th there is a, a broader colonial movement for uh, kampong reform or kampong improvement, uh, which is kind of separate from the, the plague improvement, the plague house imp home improvement. Um, but yeah, it, it kind of the, the home improvement for plague fits into that larger 
pattern. Uh, and the interesting thing, as you say, uh, is that it kind of moves into the countryside. And as you mentioned earlier, like uh, you, you get these these home improvement interventions in places where people had never seen colonial officials before. So it really is a material expansion of Dutch state power and yeah. cultural influence at this period. Yeah, yeah, and and and, and individuals encountering the state in a, in a very real material way like their their whole life has been changed because their house has been torn down and rebuilt that's just so fascinating so chapter three looks at the um the dutch colonial public health messaging so how did the colonial state present its efforts and um who are they trying to reach what what who who is and where is their audience when they're talking about uh what they're up to with uh, combating plague in java yeah, that's a, that was actually perhaps the most fun chapter to write. I, I don't really know why, but it was just, I kept coming across more and more references of the Dutch, uh, of Dutch officials and physicians, and then later other people putting up uh, exhibitions and holding lectures and uh, all around the world, basically now, mostly, mostly in the Netherlands uh, and kind of neighboring countries, and also in Java itself. Uh, you have these physicians mostly that that go from place to place and they give lectures about home improvement, about plague control. They have hundreds of lantern slides that they show to people. Um, and they're, they're, it really started to look like they had some sort of advertisement campaign going on for this, this uh, home improvement scheme, for the plague control program. And it, it starts pretty early, already in 1911, 1912, uh, when they, they first kind of decide on like, okay, let's do home improvement as our primary response. You have the physicians who come up with that plan, go, making the rounds, basically defending this intervention. And then as the scheme really develops, uh, sometime around 1920, you get exhibitions in the Netherlands and in Java, where home improvement is just continuously featured. There will be, there's always at some colonial fair, there will always be a public health stand and there will always be photographs or house models of um, plague dangerous and plague resistant houses um, and i think at first they're trying to kind of convince um, perhaps colonial officials that this is a worthwhile intervention uh, they also at some point start to really broadcast their their intervention to the javanese public that has to suffer through it um, that, that happens somewhere in the 1920s. And then increasingly, you also see that Dutch physicians and uh, officials, they start promoting their, their uh, home improvement scheme to foreign dignitaries. So mostly scientists and other uh, colonial health officials from neighboring colonies. So you have uh, various prominent uh, League of Nations officials and Rockefeller um, uh, officials visiting the Dutch East Indies and the Dutch take them on tours. They're, uh, showing them all their maps and their diagrams and their photographs, but they're also taking them to recently improved villages. Um, and in the Nether Netherlands, they're trying to, uh, I suppose, really broadcast this particular health intervention to the Dutch audience as evidence of their the, the, the new ethical course in Dutch mm -hmm. colonial rule. So those are, so yeah, those would be kind of the primary audiences, the Javanese themselves that have to, yeah, as I mentioned, suffer it. Uh, then the Dutch and these these foreign scientists, the Dutch really seem to crave appreciation uh, for their particularly long-lasting and costly intervention. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, and and this is all wonderful for uh, we historians uh, a century later because we've got this trove of of documents and photographs and um, uh, absolutely, that, yeah, you know, ma makes for a good book, right? <laughs> yeah, and I really enjoyed the diaries. Actually, like you have these diaries of Victor Heiser and uh, of. Uh, What's this man's name from the, the League of Nations? Norman White, I think. They have these beautiful diaries that I, you, you can just keep reading. And they discuss the Japanese landscape. And, oh, here's an improved village. Oh, there was a plague case. Plague really features very prominently in these travel reports as well. And they just make for such great reading. So that, That's great. So uh, chapter four has a, a bit of what you identify as a plot twist. Um, and it turns out that uh, rebuilding the home was actually not entirely sufficient to meet the plague threat. And so Dutch officials tried to change Javanese thinking about hygiene and practice. And they tried to work in what they think of as modern practice into a dot uh, Javanese tradition and, and Islamic uh, tradition. So could you speak about that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Very quickly, the Dutch realized that improving a house is not enough to kind of uh, to build out plague, building out plague proves to be an illusion really quickly after home improvement starts. So uh, they find that plague returns to villages that have been improved and uh, houses that have been improved have, have rats in them again, uh, sometimes in uh, new places, but also just because people fail to inspect places where they should have been looking for, for plague rats if they had done their job right, uh, basically. So the Dutch realized that they need some sort of educational campaign to, to accompany the home improvement scheme. So um, home improvement becomes kind of the precondition uh, for making a, ho a home rat proof. So you facilitate the search for rats and nests inside the dwelling. Uh, but really, it's the search that is absolutely crucial. So um, the Dutch go into this, they set up a campaign that ultimately tries to, to get the Javanese to clean their houses once a week or every 10 days or so uh, consistently. They have to take out all the furniture. They have to sweep uh, up on the rafters, on the beams. They have to inspect uh, what they call dead space in between double walls or little corners. And really really the mission of the dutch uh physicians is that this becomes part of this this system of adat the local practices and uh habits so um and yeah this is i identify it as a plot twist because basically this part is not particularly prominent in uh basically this whole broadcasting campaign that happens to foreign dignitaries or to the dutch audience uh this is this part is left out so the, the focus is almost exclusively for these tours and in the exhibitions uh on the home improvement itself but basically from 1911 1912 onwards um yeah the officials who are involved with plague control they they stress that really no amount of improvement will ever make a house rat proof or plague resistant. Uh, and that what you need is the education, the uplifting of the local population, uh, the better awareness of, of hygienic practices and the art of inhabiting a home, if you will. So, and that is, that campaign is, is equally sustained and equally as in, or perhaps even more invasive, I think, mm -hmm. uh, as play control, as home improvement, because it really um, goes at the heart of people's daily practices. People are encouraged in in their everyday life to see their house in a new way, as a, a space of uh, interspecies contact, a site of danger, a place that they have to keep clean. Um, meanwhile, of course, biomedical ideas are being introduced. 
Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a concurrent, but equally as important uh, or even more important campaign in addition to the home improvement itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, in the colonial state, teaching people how to uh, practice and, and perform modernity. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, and then chapter four also um, puts home building into or, or home rebuilding into conversation with vaccination and and other diseases such as malaria. Uh, could you tell us about that? Uh, yeah, I think that's chapter five, actually. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> yeah. Excuse me. Chapter no, five. Yeah. Yeah. So in you, chapter you, would, five... you would know better than me. <laughs> yes. So yeah, you're chapter five. <laughs> that, that part I didn't forget. <laughs> um, yeah. So. It... What happens there? Um, basically, in the 1930s, uh, you have this financial crisis. Um, the money for home improvement dwindles, um, but the program still persists. Uh, the number of plague cases goes up rapidly again. And really, there is all this pressure on the Dutch colonial government to do something. Uh, and um, they hit the jackpot, I suppose, because one of the, the Dutch health officials at this time, called Louis Otten, he develops uh, a new plague vaccine. And it's miraculously, wondrously uh, efficacious. So um, basically, concurrently to home improvement, the Dutch come up with this uh, vaccination campaign that is far more cost efficient, I think 20,000 uh, guilders a year um, to reach a population of about 6 million. Uh, and the number of plague cases goes from somewhere in the mid 10,000, 10,000, sorry, 15,000, 13,000, it goes down to the low hundreds. And um, I think at this point, you suddenly see that home improvement serves a bigger purpose than just uh, plague control. Because despite vaccination being so efficacious and being so cheap, home improvement persists, it expands, it's, in, it's introduced yet again into new regions. Uh, they, they reach the, the, the outbreak and home improvement reach West Java in the 1930s. Um, yeah, and, and home improvement persists. And the Dutch keep saying, now that we have vaccination, we still have to pursue home improvement because that is the most permanent solution. This is the most wonderful thing. Um, and so basically home improvement persists right up until the J Japanese invasion in 1942. Meanwhile, over that period, um, in 1937, they the, the, you have this the head of the plague service suddenly admitting that home improvement is in fact... Uh, the cause of new malaria outbreaks. So he claims in 1937, uh, oh, gee, these new houses that we've been building, it turns out that they're very hospitable to mosquitoes. And basically, in the wake of home improvement, you see one malaria outbreak after another. And, well, that seemed very tragic, of course, but, you know, honest mistake. Um, and then as I was writing the chapter, I kept finding more and more sources about this. And ultimately, it was like, Oh, actually, in 1927, 1928, 1929, we already see people referring to thing, a thing called home improvement malaria. So people already recognizing uh, in the late 1920s that home improvement causes outbreaks of malaria. And then 10 years of nothing, nothing happens. Um, it even seems to be a little bit hushed up. Um, there is one newspaper article about this uh, 1928, if I recall, and nothing after that. Uh, but if you look in some uh, official government sources, you you do find references to home malaria, home improvement malaria early on. Um, and yeah, for like seven, eight years, nine years, nothing seems to be happening. No one seems to be responding to that because the threat of plague is just bigger, supposedly. Or 
as I think I end up arguing, <laughs> uh, the, the prestige of home improvement is just so great that they can't abandon mm -hmm. it at this point. Uh, so, yeah, it's a it's a really awkward development, I suppose. Right. I forget the name of the economics term, but whatever that that fallacy is, where you've you've been sinking your investment into something, so you have feel like you have to keep keep it going, right? I mean, it's I the... would call it a sinking ship. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Well, the rat the rats jump off the sinking ship, uh, according to yes, uh, <laughs> according yeah, to yeah. Like in the end, the Dutch they, they do present it like some sort of ethical dilemma. So they refer to it as like the plague rat or Anopheles conundrum, yeah, I suppose. Right. And it, it it does seem legitimate until you realize that they kind of didn't inform other people about it for ten years. So yeah, that's yeah. the awkward bit. Well, so to, to wrap up, um, what does the history of plague in Java tell us about the colonial state, modernity, technocracy? I mean, what what are the the larger lessons from this uh, your case study? Um, yeah. Well, I think the the first thing there to notice is perhaps that in the Dutch East Indies, uh, as elsewhere, you can think of uh, of medicine. Well, you have to see medicine in the context of colonialism, and that it is an instrument in some way. Uh, to used to to foster and facilitate colonial rule, so that's the thing. And then, as for uh, technocracy, um, I suppose the the whole episode of home improvement just shows that um, technological interventions by themselves don't work. Medicine is always also about people; it's about so social and cultural conditions. Um, so you can have your wonderful technological fix, but it's never it, in the end. It's also about people, I suppose. So there's that. Um, and then about modernity, um, gosh, <laughs> I don't really know. I suppose the the whole photography element there is really interesting. Just that the fact that you 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 have this public health intervention and that you can photograph it and that you can then share this whole this whole thing to such a large audience um, uh, to kind of broadcast uh, yourself, your policies uh, as a colonial state. I suppose that's yeah, that's what what's really interesting to me, at least. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and um, I'm I'm very jealous. It must have been so much fun to work in that archive of photographs. Um, that, it was wonderful. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm my highest compliment is when I tell people I'm really jealous of their work. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, thank you. That's fantastic. There must be a lot of relevant photographs also for uh, Vietnam, for yeah, uh, no, no, French no, Indochina. Yeah, it was great, and and um, you know, especially the French are so obsessed with photography um and and it really becomes part of um the uh the, the whole the whole colonial state project so yeah we had a uh for the the hanoi rat hunt book we just um we're able to tap so many photographs and and because it's a graphic form you use those photographs to build the graphic narrative but anyway i, I can go on about that forever <laughs> but um you've been really generous yeah, some other time, part two. Um, so you've been really generous with your time, but we've got two more questions before I let you go. These are the standard new books uh, debriefing questions. Um, first, can you suggest two books for our listeners? Um, absolutely. Um, well, I think for anyone who wants to hear more about or read more about uh, medicine and the Dutch East Indies, I think uh, Nurturing Indonesia by Hans Pols is a great book. And yeah, there's very interesting books also about, of course, uh, medicine and visual culture that I really enjoy. So uh, maybe I have two, if I may. Uh, there's uh, Kirsten Oster's book, Cinematic Prophylaxis, which is highly readable. And I really enjoyed also uh, uh, Heinrich's, Ari Larissa Heinrich's book. Um, what's that called again? Um, gosh. Uh, <laughs> 
the afterlife of images yeah so ari larissa heinrich's book uh the afterlife of images that's a really great read as well so yeah so th those would be my three recommendations if okay. i may <laughs> fantastic <laughs> uh... and uh... And and, I, and I, I'm not really allowed to do this, but I'm going to. Uh, I'd also throw in Warwick Anderson, uh, uh, Colonial Pathologies, which Colonial you, Pathologies. you mentioned. I mean, it's such a yeah. fun book. It's you know the same time period, uh, just north in the American Philippines, and uh, so fascinating the way in which yeah the colonial state comes in and then start starts trying to control the bodies of its subjects. Um, um, Anyway, well, great. And and then finally, um, what are you working on now and what can we hope to see from you next? Um, so I recently started at the University of Leiden with a project on uh, medical propaganda in Southeast Asia. So it kind of builds on uh, chapter four of this book uh, called mm -hmm. Plague Propaganda. So it looks into the kind of the, the early development and then sudden burgeoning of um, health education materials. So public health films, posters, pamphlets, uh, lantern slides that are being used to kind of uh, bring modern medicine to local populations. Um, so I'm really, yeah, so I've collected a lot of these materials, not just on plague, but also many other diseases. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of uh, trying to study them as a as part of a practice, a new public health practice, I suppose, um, in again in uh, colonial contexts in Southeast Asia. Oh, fantastic! That that that's really exciting. Um, and are you looking across the region? So Dutch East Indies, French Indochina, American Philippines. Yeah. So my my primary focus is on the Dutch East Indies, French mm -hmm. Indochina, and the Philippines. Uh, oh, actually, okay, great. <laughs> uh, but but yeah. So most materials that I have found so far are from the Dutch East Indies. Um, for the for the Philippines, I mostly have a lot of references to all of the materials that they have, but I haven't actually found a lot of materials yet. And for French Indochina, I have the feeling that there are many materials, but I can't find them. So uh, tips and suggestions uh, greatly appreciated. Maybe, so maybe I found a couple of maybe, posters, but yeah, maybe a trip to Marseille in the uh, the Faro, the the Institute of Tropical Medicine, in their archive. There, they may be there. That would but, be a great one. Yeah, oh, we'll, we'll be in touch. I've got, I've got yeah, some yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> do, uh, do let me know. <laughs> great. Um, well, uh, Moritz, uh, Doctor Mirvik, uh, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a, a great pleasure. So this has been a conversation with Maritz Bastian Merrick about a history of plague in Java, 1911-1942, with Cornell University Press in 2022. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening. <laughs>